You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I get you. I know what's going on. I can tell by that wide-eyed look of expectation that I sense through the wonders of radio, the giddy smile, the twitch in your hand, that you're excited to hear this episode of Big Picture Science. How do I know? Because I'm tuned in, in this case, into emotional states, just as you are if you're joking around with friends or witnessing a driver on the highway going nonlinear. Our eyes and ears let us read where each of us is emotionally, as do these computers and sensors for this scientist. Right now, I'm wearing a sensor, and it's measuring subtle electrical changes in the surface of my skin. It's measuring my movement. Uh, It's measuring changes in my blood flow near the surface of the skin. So it's able to interpret changes in my state that might correspond to different affective states. Okay, maybe not as dynamic as watching a friend laugh and shoot milk through his nose, but these sensors are the first steps in teaching machines to read the emotional states of their human handlers. Sound improbable? Your smartphone knows what I'm talking about. Just wait. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, scientists are learning that if we're to build truly sophisticated computers, they must be emotionally intelligent as well as cognitively competent. So scientists are working on creating empathetic electronics, compassionate computers, but but hang on, human emotion is often conflicting, irrational, and a suite of factors, it turns out, many of them out of our control, govern how we behave, from genes to hormones to childhood experience. So if our emotional landscape is messy, how can we build computers that understand us? And bonus, if we're not in control of what drives our behavior, what does that suggest about free will? It's perpetual emotion machine. Okay, let's say you feel like no one gets you, that you're misunderstood. Where to begin? First, you didn't realize the cupcakes were for your niece's birthday party, and your landlord says he'll evict you if you don't get rid of the wild ferrets, even though it's supposed to be a pet-friendly building. And what's being 40 minutes late for a dinner date in the grand scheme of things when the game was tied in overtime? 
Now your dinner companion is giving you the non-stop squinty cold eye. Woe is you. Luckily, this robotics professor can help. Just power her machine on. We actually built a computer capable of giving empathy, uh, verbal empathy. And we tested it even with computer scientists and people who know the computer doesn't actually feel sorry for you. And when the computer would apologize and say, gosh, it sounds like you had a terrible experience, people loved it. They wanted to keep interacting with that computer. They felt less frustrated. They felt understood. Rosalind Picard is a professor at the MIT Media Lab, and she is the co-founder of the companies Affectiva and Empatica that are developing ways for computers to recognize human emotions. Approaches include taking measurements of physiology, heart rate and skin temperature, and using facial recognition techniques. She wants to add emotions to computing to create truly sophisticated intelligent companions for flawed, tempestuous humans. Today, computers don't really know what we're feeling. Our true innermost feelings and experiences are private. But they can see and hear and sometimes touch us. And from that, they can start to observe things that may correspond to our innermost feelings. Well, okay, you say they can do some of these things. So clearly, they must, you know, they must have a camera so they can see your face if your eyes narrow or you frown or something like that, they might be able to pick up on that. What other clues might they be sensitive to? The computers today can listen to how you're saying something, not just what accent you're putting on a syllable, but whether your voice sounds energized and happy, or whether you're sounding really you know, tired or sad. Uh, the computer can also, in a wearable form, in a wristband or other garments we might wear, sense changes in our respiration, in our skin, in our heart rate, in our muscle tension. And sometimes those can help it also interpret some of our affective states, some of our emotions. So if I were confronting one of these devices and I got impatient or something like that, (laughs) I mean, it might notice, right? It can notice what we train it and teach it to notice. One of the things I've wanted to do is teach computers to see when we're pleased or displeased at what they're doing. You, you might remember that Microsoft Office Assistant, that paperclip that used to pop up mm. when people would be trying to write a letter or something, and it would look really happy. And if you were happy, uh, then for it to look happy was intelligent. But usually when it popped up, you were not happy. I have to say, I remember Clippy, and the first thing I did was shut him off. I I don't know why, and I (laughs) I felt guilty about that. I thought maybe I'd hurt his feelings. I I don't know. Well, he didn't have any feelings, but he sure looked like he did, right? He looked like he was happy all the time. And mostly he would pop up when we made an error. And for it to smile when you were unhappy is rude. So we would want it to see in a situation like that, in a workplace situation, if what you were doing was very frustrating, annoying, confusing, um, or pleasing, pleasant, interesting, happy, and respond in an intelligent way to that. Well, Rosalind, we're talking about a new area of research called affective computing. Uh, I believe that you coined that phrase, actually. It seems to have come about after you determined that you couldn't build an intelligent machine without it having emotional capabilities what, what's the connection there? I mean, a chess-playing machine doesn't have to be able to recognize emotions or have emotions, nor does IBM's Watson. The 
computers that have very specialized tasks to do can certainly do many of those tasks without any affective abilities. At the same time, when Deep Blue beat Kasparov, afterwards, you know, the IBM team is celebrating, right? They're excited. They're happy. Uh, Deep Blue is just sitting in the closet, not feeling anything, right? At the same time, Kasparov described, you know, this kind of weird experience as if the computer had some unpredictability and almost as if he could worry a little bit about it having feelings of trying to do him in. And sometimes we just infer that these feelings are there. But those of us who make the computers know that it doesn't have them. Uh, It doesn't today, and it didn't then. However, there are cases where mechanisms that perform the functions that feelings perform in people can be useful for helping a computer to behave in better ways, to make better decisions, and to interact with us in ways that we find much more enjoyable, much more productive, and even much safer. Well, okay, then I think what you're saying there is that if the machines, if I can call them machines, if they, if these machines have the ability to understand emotions, then they may interact better with us, but the problem seems to be on our side. They don't really need that capability in order to do their thing, do they? I mean, do they even have to be self-aware? <laughs> it's, it's not clear yeah. to me that uh, a thinking yeah. machine has to be self-aware. I'm not claiming they're self-aware. They are... Uh, so the ability to experience emotions in people does involve our self-awareness. The ability to have them, however, doesn't necessarily involve that, as many people can probably think of somebody they know who may not be aware of their own feelings, and yet sometimes they show feelings on the outside. I'm thinking of a person who is yelling at you, and they look angry, and they go, I'm not angry! And you're kind of looking at them going, uh, well, uh, maybe you're not angry, but you sure look angry. You sure sound angry. You, know, you might need to learn a little bit about what you're going through right now. There are actually a lot of people who, uh, there's a label for this. It's called alexithymia. And they really aren't aware of or don't have that interoceptive ability to, to sense what they're feeling. So just because you may think you don't have feelings doesn't mean you don't. Just because you may not be aware of how prevalent they are in your decision-making or your perception or your action selection doesn't mean that they aren't biasing those things. Similarly, computers appear to have feelings, but we could give them mechanisms that bias their behaviors in ways that feelings bias behaviors. Okay, so it's really a matter of communication between me and the computer, right? It's if it, it's one more channel of communication in addition to whatever I'm typing or saying? Yes, that's a, actually a, a great way to think about it is as additional information. Emotion can be a kind of information that is communicated. However, it's not just information like the words that you and I are exchanging right now. It is a kind of information that happens in parallel with our language. You know, if we had to convert all emotions to words, we would have to stop and describe how we're feeling right now. But emotions have this wonderful ability in that they can wash alongside all the other forms of information. They are adverbs modulating them. The emotion modulates my speech. It modulates my facial muscles. It modulates my gestures. Just about everything we do has an adverbial aspect to it, and emotion modulates 
those adverbs. To help the computer puzzle out human emotion, you've done studies of the physiology of emotion. So what sort of factors come into play? Obviously, the muscles in your, in your face do, but what else? It turns out that emotion modulates just about everything we can measure. You know, we can measure your heart rate changing, your breathing changing, your skin getting sweaty, your muscles getting tight. We can also measure things like how you're sitting in a chair, how you're squeezing a mouse, how you're holding the steering wheel of a car, how you're handling the gear shift. Uh, we can measure, a <laughs> long time ago, we put pressure sensors in a chair and we could measure how your fidgets changed in the chair. We did this with students when they were really interested in what they were doing versus when they were really holding on for dear life and couldn't wait to get out of there. Well, well, why does emotion engage so many, you know, bodily systems, if you will? I mean, clearly, it, uh, you know, our bodies really react to it. It must be very important to us. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, why, I don't know, except that it does help us understand each other. The visual and auditory and even olfactory and, and tactile ways in which emotion is manifest and communicates between us, those do help us understand each other. And I think that's super important. So why we have them, we, we know they're important for communication. Uh, we also know that emotion, these signals, uh, carry messages between all the organs in our body, the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches and the enteric branch, send signals between lots of different parts of our body, and it influences how our organs function. It influences digestion. You know, stress doesn't just make your heart beat faster. It also changes the way that your body processes food. It changes the way your brain works. And why these states modulate pretty much everything going on in our body is still a big mystery that we would love to know more about. So how effective is it? I mean, I could pretend to be happy or angry. Could it tell that I was, if you will, lying? I mean, you know, a lot of this is very subtle. I, I talk to somebody yeah. and they're pretending to be interested, but I can tell they're pretending. Uh, so I figure that we're pretty well-tuned or attuned to the real emotions that are uh, taking place in the person in front of me. I wonder how good the, the computers can be. Well, the skin conductance is perhaps the most useful signal used in lie detection. However, the raw signal level that's read out doesn't tell you if a person is lying or not. The signal is only useful when you use it with a very carefully designed protocol that helps you interpret the signal properly. And it's a bit complex to do that. It requires some real expertise and really requires an expert there to examine the whole way in which you're asking people questions and what you're measuring. Because there are a lot of ways people can cheat it. I could teach you ways to cheat it. <laughs> we have also, uh, um, we haven't worked specifically on better ways to do lie detection in my lab. However, we have kind of inadvertently uh, developed a very accurate way to tell the difference between a smile that is elicited by happiness and mirth and a smile that may look exactly the same at its peak you know, involving the lip corner pull and the eye crinkle. So you look really happy at just that moment of peak smile, but actually it's a smile that people tend to give when they're frustrated. You know, it's almost like they're going, <clears throat> like they're trying to cheer themselves up and they're smiling with their eyes in their mouth. And at that peak moment, if you show these two smiles, the truly happy smile and the really frustrated smile, 
to a group of people, they're about 50-50 telling if it was a happy or a frustrated smile. Uh, and we've developed computer algorithms that are much better than people at telling those apart. I keep thinking of Hal in the movie 2001. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, he was, I think, more attuned to what was going on than he let on. You know, he would say, I'm sorry, Dave, and all that. But I don't know that he was sorry, and I think he was able to read some emotions there that uh, yes. Dave, Dave didn't realize. But give, give me an actual example that you think might put this technology to good use in the not-so-distant future. Why, you know, where would we use a computer that's able to plumb our emotions, as it were? Yeah, Hal, check out the book Hal's Legacy, which is full of examples of Hal's not just intelligence playing chess and computer vision and audition, but also Hal was really the first computer to exhibit some signs of emotional intelligence. Um, in fact, Hal was the most emotional character in the film 2001. It's really fascinating. We hunted through that entire film trying to find a facial expression or emotion on any of the humans. And we find a whole bunch of expressiveness in Hal and only one human emotional expression in the entire film. Uh, and that was when he was shutting Dave Bowman out from the ship. And David looked up distressed. Um, <laughs> so here's an example where the computer could sense and respond to our emotion, it would make an important difference. Uh, when a driver is mildly upset, such as they've just been listening to pretty much any of the recent news, right, then the car is n helping you navigate and it's talking to you. Should the car navigation voice be subdued or should the car navigation voice kind of sound like it should try to cheer you up, kind of happy? Well, it turns out in nicely designed controlled experiments that Cliff Nass and colleagues did out at Stanford that it was shown that if the driver was mildly upset, having just heard bad stuff on the news, versus if the driver was mildly cheerful, having just heard maybe something funny, that it made a huge difference which voice the car talked to you in. If you were happy and the voice was happy, you drove the safest of all. If you were mildly upset and the voice was subdued, you drove the next safest of all. But if it used the wrong voice with your state, if you were happy and it used the subdued voice, or worst of all, if you were upset and it sounded happy, then you had the most accidents of all while driving. Wow. Clippy in your Chevy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And a, an intelligent human knows if the driver is kind of upset or stressed, you don't start, you know, playing super happy stuff at them and bouncing around joyfully, right? That is so irritating. It sounds like humans are touchy. We know deep down we're just being reasonable, but still human emotion is messy at best, which suggests that Dr. Picard and her team are in for a challenge in building machines that understand us. Well, we'll hear more from her on that later. But first, an idea of just what she and her emotionally driven team are up against. Our emotional reactions are complex, they're conflicting, and they're rooted in a cascading series of impulses. So why did we lash out at the poor cashier when we learned that our favorite chocolate ice cream cookies were out of stock? Well, it may seem obvious, but... you got to take into account what's going on in your brain one second before back to millions of years worth of evolutionary selective pressures and everything in between because they all intertwine. Neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky on the many drivers behind why we do what we do from going nonlinear to altruism 
Next, it's Perpetual Emotion Machine on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. As a primatologist, Robert Sapolsky has witnessed his share of temper tantrums because while his principal research interest is baboons, his subjects include other primates as well. Hey, bud, what are you doing? This is my lane. I was in this lane. Oh, I see you. I'm following you home. You better get used to me, buddy. I'm going to be living in your yard. Also a neuroscientist at Stanford University, Dr. Sapolsky has studied the reasons why humans do the crazy things that they do. Now, the possible answers were once thought to be rooted in one of two categories, nature or nurture. Well, those have now expanded to include myriad factors from both categories. Why do we do what we do at any one moment? Childhood experience, adolescent experience, environmental pollution, epigenetics, genes, hormones, even what we had for lunch. And admittedly, humans like to get off the hook by giving an excuse for bad behavior while taking credit for our noble acts. Well, we may not have much control over either. Dr. Sapolsky's book is Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And the conclusions he draws after outlining all the factors that drive us to act bear on the larger question of whether we have free will. But first things first. Robert, the question of free will is a tantalizing one, but I'd like to ask you about it at the end of the interview, after we've heard the explanation for why humans do what they do, and we'll let listeners draw their own conclusions. So let's begin by examining your idea that human behavior swings from good to bad and that we're conflicted, because I wonder if we are conflicted. You give the example of us yelling at a driver who cuts us off. Um, That doesn't sound conflicted. Since driving is one of the most dangerous things we do, it seems like a rational response to stress. And so can't we make the case that bad behavior may actually just be an appropriate response to a stressful situation and therefore rational? Often it absolutely is. And we do have a vague, fleeting capacity for rationality now and then. (laughs) Um, Often what we have even more so is a capacity for rationalization or irrational behavior that nonetheless comes with certain rules as to in what way we go off the rails. And I think enormous insight ranging from making sense of our worst moments in relationships to like hard-nosed economic behavior is the extent to which we are rarely, you know, homo economists, just sort of highly rational beasts. Well, to come back to the, the, the traffic question, 
if someone does cut you off in traffic and you yell at them, is that a rational or irrational response? Um, irrational from the standpoint that these days there is a slight risk that the person will wind up shooting you. Irrational in most regards from the standpoint that it is unlikely to change the person's behavior. Um, perfectly rational in terms of one of the greatest things we do in terms of stress reduction is to attempt to displace aggression. It's not so great for the passengers in the car um, with you, but yes. Exactly. Yes. Well, you talk about physiology, and um, we do share the majority of our biology with other animals. Can you give an example of where a primate, one of our closest cousins, off gases, as it were, but um, is able to vent aggression in the that is maybe parallel to a driver yelling at another driver. Sure, and this is some of my own work. In addition to sort of doing lab neurobiology, I've also, for the last thirty years, spent summers studying wild baboons in East Africa and looking at their behavior and physiology. And in general. If you are a moderately low-ranking baboon, you're going to have elevated stress hormone levels. Your life is pretty crummy in very literally physical ways, but also in lots of psychological ways, in lack of control, lack of predictability, so on. Baboons come with strong personalities. And what sort of personality markers predict a low-ranking baboon who nonetheless is going to be buffered from some of the indignities of subordination, some of the physiological consequences. One is ones who have good, nice, stable grooming relationships with somebody else, who nice kumbaya sort of thing. But another, and in lots of ways, probably the most effective one is if you have a very effective means of when you are getting grief from somebody higher ranking of then proceeding to dump on somebody even lower ranking than you. That's wonderfully stress-reducing. It's awful for the one even lower, but displacement aggression is, you know, <laughs> extremely functional in the short term. And so from your perspective, having worked with baboons and then also mingling with humans from time to time, <laughs> is it much of a jump to see the parallel behaviors? Well, of course, the official professorial response is yes and no. It's exactly the same on a certain level. And in some ways, the neurobiology is the same. The effects of testosterone and stress hormones on the amygdala, the sort of sensory pathways that sensitize you towards finding neutral behaviors to be, in fact, provocative and threatening, the neurobiology is exactly the same. And the behaviors are exactly the same. Displacement makes us feel better as primates, and that accounts for an astonishing percentage of the world's primate misery. Exactly the same until you look more closely. A chimp will kill another chimp if he's from a neighboring group in ways that have us, them written all over it, in ways that even approximate genocide, now well documented, that groups of chimps, males, will eradicate all the males in a neighboring group and expand to take over their territory. This is the definition of genocide, killing an individual not because of who they are, but because of what group they belong to. But there's no chimp on earth who has ever killed somebody else because of their theological beliefs or their belief about what the ideal economic system is or let alone because they love in a different way than is typically viewed as normative. So once we get into that realm, once we are killing and willing to die over like 
craziness like ideology, we're way out there all on our own as a species, no matter how much it's the exact same neural pathways mediating that aggression. Well, this anticipates my next question, which is if our neurobiology is so similar to that of, let's say, other primates, what is it indeed that is unique about human behavior, and it may be our ability to reflect on our behavior or to have a presence of mind, an imagination, a consciousness? A consciousness, a capacity for abstraction. Lots of other species do things that look very compassionate, and as far as we can tell, the neurobiology, the endocrinology is very similar to what we have. We're the only species that can feel compassionate about a refugee kid on the other side of the planet who we have never met, let alone smelled the pheromones of. So that capacity for abstraction over space and time, the capacity to do the same sort of regulatory stuff that other primates do, but do it just orders of magnitude longer. We, for example, our brains use dopamine as a neurotransmitter in precisely the same way as in other mammals, primates, which is it's got something to do with reward, but mostly it's got to do with anticipation of reward. And the goal-directed behaviors you are willing to sweat away at in order to get that reward. And the dopamine system is completely engaged in a rhesus monkey who has learned that needs to do 30 seconds worth of some task to get some raisin. And we then use the exact same neurobiology to study hard to get a good SAT score, to get into a good college, to get into a good grad school, to get a good job, to get into a good nursing home. The anticipatory goal-directed behavior we're willing to do is just the same exact biology, but used in just nuttily unique ways. Well, when I hear you describe it, it sounds so complex. And indeed, um, this is the theme of your book, that our behavior is the result of many things going on. So we have neurons and we have genes and we have the, our childhood and hormones and all of this. And yet, don't we crave that single aha explanation for why we do what we do? So why are we compassionate? It's because of X. So you can point to the part of my brain that says it's because you have extra neurons there, Molly, that are lighting up or because we've evolved or for whatever, or because you have this or that gene, yeah. or there's no surprise, a pull towards simplicity. There's a pull towards breaking continua into buckets of categorical explanations, and thus you can potentially feel like you are explaining the universe of behavior with this part of the brain or this gene or this hormone or this prenatal environmental experience or so on, but they're incredibly intertwined. And if you're going to make sense of the biology of our behaviors, especially our context-dependent best and worst ones, you got to take into account what's going on in your brain one second before, back to millions of years worth of evolutionary selective pressures and everything in between because they all intertwine. And this complexity is something new. I mean, as that's not a startling thing to say, but there was a time when it was our behavior was explained as either nature-nurture, which now seems so simplistic. But it is just, in, I would say in the last 20 years, maybe the last 10 years, that all of these other factors have come in to show you just how complex it is. Maybe the latest being epigenetics, for example, sure. the environmental, the ways in which the environment can shape the expression of genes. The fact that the levels of your mom's stress hormone levels you were exposed to as a fetus, say, for example, in one of the better understood human versions, because of the psychological stress of her low socioeconomic status, 
is going to cause epigenetic changes in how your brain is wired up and how it's going to respond to experience in adulthood and, in fact, how you are likely to parent and pass on some of those same traits to your offspring. Who would have expected that? A huge percentage of what's turning out to be biologically relevant to our behavior falls in the category of, whoa, who would have expected that? There's a <laughs> subterranean world of biological influences that, for the most part, we haven't a clue of. For the most part, we would never expect. For the most part, scientists knew next to nothing about not that long ago, and which are just going to continue to accumulate in terms of knowledge about that stuff. Well. It sounds quite complex, Robert. Why not walk away from trying to understand why we do what we do and find another line of work that's easier? Well, because it's kind of cool <laughs> and because like, it's a very appealing type of puzzle solving and because it matters. This is my obligatory soapbox deal, which is everybody should study the, bio the biology behavior because tacitly we are all behavioral biologists. When we sit on a jury, we're being one because we're deciding something about the inevitability or the malleability of certain behaviors and its context dependency. If we're dealing with a loved one sunk in some psychiatric disorder, are they being clinically depressed because they got screwy serotonin levels or are they indulging themselves? At every one of these junctures, we are implicitly making decisions about how free or not we are as organisms in the context of the biology of our behavior. So given that these things like make a difference when we make decisions in these realms, you know, it's probably a good thing that we learn about them and that people are informed. However, now that you've made the, the case for complexity, couldn't you also make the case that all behaviors generated in the brain, that that is the grand central station of sure. our behavior? Because I believe you use the term that behavioral science is nerve science when you really get down to it. Because that's the final common pathway. I mean, on the most like mechanistic, sort of unpoetic mechanical level, behavior consists of your muscles doing something or other. And your muscles do that because your nervous system told your muscles to do that. So insofar as our behavior is the end product of everything from like how tight your socks are that you put on this morning to millions of years of selective pressure for savanna-dwelling social primates, blah, blah, blah. What it all comes down to at the end is it's all going to funnel into deciding what your nervous system does. However, not for a second does that wind up telling you that thus you're going to be able to explain the whole universe by only concentrating on the nervous system. It's the readout, but it's obviously far from, vastly far from, the only level that winds up giving us some insight into where behaviors are coming from. Now, have there been any studies that illustrate the effect of tight socks on behavior? Um, to my knowledge, no, and all one can say is research is desperately needed in this area. I'm, I'm merely hypothesizing that this might be relevant to the human predicament, but sadly, it is unstudied. But there have been studies that reveal the unseen forces that shape behavior. And one of the fascinating studies that you write about is a study in Israel about judges and the role of blood sugar in influencing their sentencing. And I wonder if you could talk about that study that's really stunning. This is one that should 
bring everybody to a standstill when you think about it and when you extrapolate into all the other realms where this is pertinent. Um, as you said, a study published in Proceedings National Academy of Sciences, a very prestigious journal, um, study of judges in Israel on their parole boards, their prison parole boards, and they studied every single one of them and every decision they made over the course of a year, something like 5,000 parole decisions. And what was the single biggest predictor they identified as to whether they would parole someone or send them back to the slammer? How many hours it had been since the judge had eaten? Like, Basically, if you went to a judge right after lunch, about a 90% chance of being paroled, get them right before lunch, about a 10% chance. The data are like flabbergasting in there. And what amazes me with that are two things. First, like we know the biology of why that makes sense. What's happening at a juncture between saying, this person is incorrigible, I don't find their explanation to be convincing, I think they're manipulating me when they're going on about their rehabilitation, throw them back in jail there, or can I stop here and take their perspective and try to understand where they came from and all sorts of things that take more work. Quite higher order processing skills, Exactly. Much of it having to do with the most higher order part of the brain, the frontal cortex. And on a very simple, like totally pedestrian level, those neurons use a lot of energy. Your frontal cortex is one of the most expensive parts of your brain. Willpower takes power metabolically. And when blood glucose levels drop, your frontal cortex doesn't work as well. You don't do a math task requiring frontal working memory. Ooh, quickly subtract seven from seven starting at 100. You're not as charitable. You're not as empathic. You're not as able to stop and say, wait a second, is my viewpoint actually valid or is that just knee-jerk something? Let me think this through. That takes frontal neurons having enough energy to say, wait a second, stop here before you jump to a conclusion. Let's think about this a couple more seconds. And when blood glucose levels drop, your frontal cortex doesn't work as well. And the manifestation here is it's harder to take somebody else's perspective. So one thing there is Like, this makes sense. We understand the biology of it. The other thing that flabbergasts me is after one of these decisions, if you had sat one of those judges down and said, so tell me why you decided that, and they're going to quote, I don't know, Nietzsche or Immanuel Kant or who knows what, and they're going to have, after the fact, been scrambling with a post hoc rationalization for why what was basically an implicitly, unconsciously shaped, biologically shaped decision as to why that actually makes perfect sense in a rational world. And that's going on in us all the time. I want to say it feels like we're going along for the ride, but we are our brains. We can't separate that. So we includes the brain. It's disorienting to think about what kind of agency we have on the world and in in what ways we don't have any. Yep. Of course, my take, which has taken me a long time to get to and I fully recognize often does not like sit well with most people. My take is there's like no agency. Agency is what we call the biological influences that haven't been discovered yet. And with that, Robert Sapolsky has hinted at his opinion on the existence of free will. We'll hear his full response. But given all that we've heard about how gosh darn complicated humans are, how sure is Rosalind Picard that she can build machines able to relate? That's next. It's Perpetual Emotion Machine on Big Picture Science. 
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we've heard the many influences on our behavior. For example, our nervous system, our genes, hormones, our childhood, our high school experiences, maybe that trip to South America, meeting our mother-in-law, or the shrimp salad we had for lunch. Okay, maybe I'm embellishing a bit, but the point is, as neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky said, there are many drivers shaping our responses at any one time, and most are out of our control. So that brings us to the conundrum we posed to Dr. Sapolsky at the beginning of the interview with him. We asked him to hold off in responding, but he hinted at the answer. The question, given all that is driving us, are we even in control? Do we have free will? Eh, there's no way. However, I recognize that is not easily presented as a persuasive argument. You know, absolutely at this stage, there are all sorts of aspects of human behavior we can't begin to explain, let alone predict. Absolutely, without question, the biology that we know does not explain even a large percentage of our behaviors because the individual variability is enormous. Absolutely, without question, those leave just gaping vacuums that beg for a sense of agency or a little homunculus sitting there doing free will at a control panel in our heads. But if one takes the larger view, all we keep doing is learning more and more and more about these subterranean biological forces that are shaping us. And we know we have already gone enormous distances in accepting emotionally some of them. And the example I always come back to is 500 years ago, if you were smart and careful and reflective and introspective and a critical thinker and all those good things, and somebody asked you what the cause was of an epileptic seizure, the answer was obvious, which was demonic possession. And the therapeutic intervention there, which was obvious, which was burning at the stake. Oh, we have learned, no, it's screwy potassium channels in people's brains. It's not them, it's their disease. Okay, so it's taken us, I don't know, 500 years to pull that one off and maybe 50 years to begin to understand that like cortical malformations could lead to kids who have trouble learning to read rather than it being laziness. So more and more, we are getting these biological threads that are influencing our behavior in domains we never ever would have suspected and domains where we fill in rationalization after the fact to try to make it seem volitional and agency-filled. And at this juncture, the vast majority of that information has emerged exponentially over the last 50 years, 10 years, five years, whatever. And at this juncture, either you have to say, that's it, Starting tonight at midnight, there's never going to be a new scientific fact accumulated about the biology behavior. And if that's the case, yeah, most of what we're doing, you're 
free will is as good of an explanatory model as anything some biologist could come up with. But if instead all that happens is the accelerated pace of knowledge coming in, that's been the case from day one, all that's going to happen is the amount of space free will has is going to get more and more cramped. And my personal opinion is it will eventually evaporate. And it's just not there. Free will is the biology we don't understand yet. Well, finally, when you sat down this morning and before I turned on the recorder, you said that you hadn't eaten breakfast yet. So you did this interview, uh, presumably hungry. So I'm wondering, given the study of the judges, would you have given us a different interview, different (laughs) responses, had you eaten first? I hope it wouldn't have been, but like, you know, (laughs) we're all made of these cells and molecules and stuff and like... It applies to all of us and our worst moments and also in some ways far more difficult to accept in our best moments as well. Well, it was a wonderful discussion. You you did very well on an empty stomach. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robert Sapolsky, for being with us today. Good. Thanks for having me here. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University and author of Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Well, It's a little distressing to think that I'm not the captain of my own ship. On the other hand, maybe it gets me off the hook for a lot of stuff. But those who are not off the hook are the computer scientists and roboticists who endeavor to build machines that can relate to our emotional, messy selves. I mean, with all that's involved, it sounds impossible, even for an intelligent machine. And so again, we turn to robotics professor Rosalind Picard. Rosalind, we heard from Robert Sapolsky that the drivers of human emotion and behavior are complex, a combination of genes, hormones, experience, so messy and so much that we really don't understand it all. So our question to you is, given what he says, if we don't understand it, can you build it? That's a great question. Emotions are incredibly complex, and it's true. We do not understand all the factors that contribute to them. At the same time, imagine the following scenario. There are a lot of people who have a dog, and they come home at the end of the day, and they look miserable. They walk in the front door, and uh, they're stressed, and their face looks unhappy. And the dog greets them with a happy wagging tail. And very quickly, the dog realizes that Master, who's come home, doesn't look very happy. And what does the dog do? The dog stops wagging its tail and looking happy, puts its ears back and its tail down and looks like it kind of mirrors, you know, your misery. And then what happens? The dog owner feels better and happier. And then all of a sudden the dog feels happy again too, tails wagging. And in fact, that whole transaction happens faster than it took me to just describe it right now. Now, I ask you, in that situation, does the dog understand what an emotion is? Does the dog understand the mechanisms of your emotion? Does it have a name for your emotion? Probably none of those. Probably the dog has simply learned that if you look that way and it looks that way, it's more likely to get fed sooner (laughs) or treated better or pet or played with. Um, But the dog is still completing a transaction where it is showing that it has recognized something related to your emotions. It has mirrored and shown a kind of a dog empathy, if you will, whether or not it feels what you feel. It has changed the way it looks like it feels. And it has done so in a way that helps you feel better. It has done so in a way that is healthy and beneficial and 
dare I say, intelligent. So the dog has already shown us that it is capable of recognizing and responding to emotions in an emotionally intelligent way, even without having a theory of emotion or understanding of how emotion works. So it sounds like what you're saying is, look, if a dog can do it, a machine can do it, right? Precisely, precisely. So with the machine, we have the benefit of lots of data and machine learning. And also, we dig into what it's doing, and hopefully we advance the theory of emotion at the same time. But of course, if my face registers a frown, it might not mean that I'm sad or angry. In fact, I myself might not even know what I'm feeling. Exactly. And that gets back to this alexithymia. I think a lot of people really don't know what they're feeling, and they, or they have a very limited awareness of it. And the technology we're building can help people to literally see signals changing that go with some of their emotions. And these can be amplifiers. And as you see that signal going up, you can go, oh, actually, now I know what's making that go up. I do actually have a little bit of a feeling with that. I just never noticed it before. And as you see it, you can start to notice it, a kind of a useful biofeedback. And I think actually this technology, especially the wearables, can help people get better understanding of what they're feeling. Finally, Rosalind, Dr. Sapolsky has suggested that given the considerable range of influences on human behavior, we might not have free will. I mean, in that way, perhaps humans are pre-programmed and, uh, and kind of similar to machines. I mean, here we are worried about the robots taking over, but maybe we are robots. There are some people who simply declare themselves to be robots, and there's certainly some customer service people, you know, you may have had experiences with on the phone who follow <laughs> lists of procedures and act like robots. Uh, I don't think we are. I think we are free to be and think and feel in various ways, not that one can't influence those significantly. Uh, but I, I will differ there. I think we do have free will, and I don't think anybody can take that away from us. Rosalind Picard, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. What a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Rosalind Picard is a professor at the MIT Media Lab and the co-founder of the companies Affectiva and Empatica. Well, so far in this show, we've heard about how complex our emotions really are and uh, how difficult it might be to recognize them. And yet the people who are building the machines to do so seem to be pretty optimistic. How do you feel about that, that yes. your emotions are complex? Yes, my emotions are complex. You know, look, this is the way I look at it. If a baby can learn how to recognize people's true feelings within a couple of years, and, and maybe even dogs. I'm, I'm sure a machine can do it once you give it enough feedback, you know, enough uh, training. I, I think even Clippy could have learned something. <laughs> I think I think we're all happy that Clippy has uh, moved on to other things, better and brighter, I hope. But what Dr. Picard said is... trying to hold is, things together, Clippy. <laughs> but what Dr. Picard said is that I don't think that in the case of the dog, the animal doesn't need to understand Right, right, your emotion, but it sees that something's wrong, and so it does have a response to at least you know superficial read. Yeah, exactly. It's just like a computer that can translate from you know English into French or something. It doesn't need to really understand anything that it's translating. If you asked them anything about the content, of course, the machine wouldn't know. 
It was interesting, uh, the study that uh, Dr. Sapolsky said about the Israeli judges and the variability in sentencing depending on whether or not they'd eaten anything. Yeah, that was kind of distressing, wasn't it? But I can understand that. If you don't have enough fuel, if you don't have enough energy to run your, your cerebral machine, well, of course the decisions are not going to be optimal. Yeah, it makes you want to keep nuts around. Yeah, that seems to be the philosophy at uh, several of the places I've worked in the past. But here's the thing. Uh, machines don't need to be fed. So if they do develop complex emotions, they can just keep on ticking perpetual emotion machines for certain, and uh, they don't need fuel to to behave. Well, you won't have to worry about catching them before lunch, at least as long as you keep them plugged in or change their batteries. Well, thanks to the emotionally stable duo who helped produce this show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the possibility of life in the harshest cosmic environments. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the Big Picture Science episode, Perpetual Emotion Machine. And if you feel in your gut that you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, no need to examine the reasons for that. You'll find more episodes in our archive, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio, even though you don't consciously know why, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen to our show via iTunes, we invite you to leave an emotionally gushing review of the positive variety on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise, and email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.